Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Kimberly Hahn. Kimberly Hahn earned a Bachelor of Arts in Communications and a Master of Art in Theological Studies. She has been married to theologian Scott Hahn since 1979, and the two have six children and 15 grandchildren. Kimberly became Catholic in 1990 after a difficult struggle during the first four years following Scott's entrance into the Catholic Church. Together, they completed a book about their journey into the church entitled Rome Sweet Home. Kimberly's other books include Life-Giving Love, a four-part series on the Proverbs 31 Woman, Contributions to Catholic for a Reason, The Gift of Femininity, and The Fabric of Life. She also co-authored the book Catholic Education, Homeward Bound, A Guide to Homeschooling. In recent retirement from 26 years of homeschooling, Kimberly decided to launch her political career and was elected for a four-year term on Steubenville, Ohio's City Council as Councilwoman at Large. Thank you so much for joining us today. (laughs) It's a joy to be with you, Kim. (laughs) So I will get right into the homeschooling of 26 years, because I think that a lot of people are thinking when they hear that, whether they're homeschooling or not. But you homeschooled six children for 26 years and devoted your life to their formation and education. Now, many modern women would look upon this as wasted years from a woman with a master's degree, especially. How do you respond? to that sentiment in a way that changes minds and hearts? Well, I begin with the gift of life of each one of these precious children. And by the time they were school age, I had already done, I think, the most difficult physical work of teaching them to walk and talk and go to the bathroom. (laughs) And now we were like ready to explore life. Um, As exciting as it is, to have your children take their first steps in front of you. I think it's even more exciting to have them take their first steps of intellectual growth, um, putting together letters and words into phrases and sentences, understanding um, the faith in the simplest ways, and then gradually getting more complex, um, where you see the faith of your child flower from uh, simple faith that uh, believes what you say because you're a parent and you're trustworthy and they believe you to opening up their heart and really developing into a brother or sister in Christ. Um, to share those moments, all of those years is a, a, a treasure for me. Um, and it, it goes by quickly, even though some of the days can feel slow. It It was just such a gift to have that amount of quality time with them. Um, It isn't just the sheer quantity. It was quality. I'd have to say for my personality, it it was harder for me to remember to get down on the floor and play with my children than to have a task to accomplish. So for me, homeschooling gave me structure um, so that I could help my children move forward academically with an economy of time, you just simply don't have to take the same amount of time when you're tutoring children. Um, If they don't understand, you slow the process down. 
if they understand you Mm -hmm. don't do endless pages of copying the same letters or numbers or math problems, if they get the idea, you move on. And with every child, I would say I had an opportunity to see a particular bent or strength or interest and encourage that in them. Um, So, you know, uh, it might be math or it might be English or it might be history um, and, and giving them extra little projects and ideas, um, fostering that delight directed learning. Um, So for me, it was just a tremendous adventure year after year, Um, certainly demanded a lot for me um, spiritually to be on my game so that I uh, didn't play to my weaknesses of being uh, bossy and a drill sergeant. <laughs> I had to learn to be kind uh, and forgiving and generous and gracious, um, but also getting to share my own particular strengths with my children, my love for music, um, my love for the Lord, um, having them memorize scripture, um, sharing uh, creative writing and and having special projects with them. So um, I, I didn't feel like it was a waste of any of my time. As, as uh, Chesterton says, why does it mean so much to be a small part of so many children's lives when um, you could be so much to so few? And I think that's that's um, uh, has a lot of treasured memories for me. I'm very, very grateful we did this. Right. And I think that that is so important to in the day in and day out to remember what a gift it is and what a treasure it is. And I think sometimes you even have to tell yourself that when you're in the thick of it, because you do forget, you know, when you're just running around and and the kids are young and all of that other kind of thing. It's important to continue to reflect and say, this is a gift. This is going by fast. This is bleeding. And um, also to be able to see the uniqueness in each child. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, playing to their dignity in that and taking that time with each child to pull out and draw out their strengths and, and they also, you know, reflect your strengths and weaknesses as well. And for all of those reasons, yeah. um, you know, it's just, and, and it is hard sometimes to communicate that to outside people. I mean, a lot of parents, especially of um, many children have faced that frustration with perfect strangers or family or friends who have, you know, given them a hard time for the amount of kids they have or the way that they're raising their kids or teaching their kids. And I think um, that that is a constant struggle to respond in love or in a way that when you're so exhausted or feeling maybe frazzled yourself or not even sure why you're doing some of these things on certain days to be able to respond in a way that you know, makes people say, wow, I mean, I don't know why they're doing this. It seems crazy, but there's something about it, or there's just a love despite all the craziness that doesn't really make sense, but it somehow it comes through to me, you know? I, I would say you already have that natural relationship of a parent where number one, that child is your absolute favorite third grader or fourth grader or fifth grader. Um, you have that unconditional love 
And I, I think there are many teachers who truly do approach their children with love, but it is something they have to develop. And then the class moves on and they get a new class where when you are teaching your own particular children, you know, this is God's gift to you in this child, the fruit of your love with your spouse. And to have that intimate relationship where you are teaching them about all of life is, is such a privilege. Um, then you also have the natural relationship of authority, um, where again, a teacher in a classroom has to establish that. And there's there's the crowd control, right, in a large class. I mean, even if it's only a class of 18 to 20 in some of the private schools, um, you still have many, many, many concerns. And so you can't fine tune character. You can't um, hone in on um, small adjustments, say to their uh, uh, learning math facts, or, or are they really getting down fractions or decimals or multiplication tables? They either get it or they don't. You do the best you can, you move on. But when you are homeschooling, you can actually put your curriculum on hold briefly if you need to. And for different children, I would do that. And so maybe we would take two or three weeks where we would uh, play with multiplication flashcards and we would approach it in different ways till they really got the concept. And it never put us back very far. And very quickly, because they understood the concept, then we would build on that. Some moms have actually found a love for math or for science or for history or for English that they never had growing up. And they now realize it's because I didn't understand something, but the class had to move on. And so I had gaps in my understanding, which um, frustrated me. I didn't get it, or I didn't have a teacher who was enthusiastic about it. And, um, and so now they realize oh, this is, this is actually exciting to get a concept or to understand how to teach this. I'm learning it better myself. Um, and that's part of that shared, shared joy, I think, in education. And I think everything is more exciting through the scope of your children. You kind of see that just like Christmas morning, it's, you know, exciting all over again when you have children. Yes. And um, so a segue from this, after 26 years, you decided you're going to go into politics, which seems probably um, the last thing that anybody expected and not really the direction that many goodwilled people are moving in. So you currently serve as a city councilwoman for Steubenville, Ohio, defying all odds in a city that is six to one Democrat with only three Republicans elected in the last 26 years yes. and only one woman on the council. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so many might expect this political success from a lifelong politician with a killer strategy, but homeschooling mom and theologian. So how did motherhood prepare you to be, as you said, mother to the yeah. city? Um, I think one of the ways is knowing how over my head I am, because I think I think anybody who thinks they can even parent one child is um, is a little bit deluded. And definitely when you have a large number and a large number that are small, you know, you just know that you need help. So it wasn't about being talented enough or intelligent enough to take it on. It was the question was, could I serve and could I serve well? And I was willing. So we began there. Um, and my goal was to bring this 
idea of expressing the dignity of the human person to every person in this city. And I did that by knocking on almost 8,000 doors. I did not follow normal strategies. I didn't target all the Republicans and the independents. And someone said, don't waste time going to the projects. Uh, most of them aren't registered to vote and the ones that do will never vote for you because there's an R after your name. And I said, but if I'm elected, I will still represent them. So I want to meet them. I, I want to ask them for their vote, but even more, I want to find out what are their concerns? What are their needs? Who's listening to them? And uh, one gentleman in the projects, when I knocked on his door, he came to the door and he said, no one has ever knocked on my door and asked for my vote. And he said, I don't even care what you believe. You've got my vote because you showed up on my doorstep. Now, I wow, that is awesome. That awesome. Um, we went to another set of projects and we set up um, a really fun event where uh, my son who does juggling came with some of his friends who juggle. Uh, they juggled um, balls and, and um, uh, bowling pins. And then they did fire torches and it grew, drew a crowd. And then I just walked around and talked to the various parents. We did, we did a hot dog grill out and we were doing face painting and it just was a fun event to try to say to the people, you matter, you matter. And I really believe with all my heart that that message got communicated. I also believe that for practical reasons, I want to build up marriages, but for practical purposes, people need work to be able to ease the tensions in their marriage. So there is a role in politics for clearing away some of the things that make it difficult for companies to move into an area, working with the building department, making sure that your water and sewer systems are functioning so that people have um, access to good water. Um, there are, there's a spiritual side in which we, we preach the gospel and we reach out to people. And, and ultimately, Jesus is the only true solution to the human soul in terms of, of hope and peace. But there are also practical things we can do on the human level that opens people's hearts up to hope, um, helps build a sense of community. And, and then ultimately, when people say, you know, well, why are you motivated to do this? Then you get to talk about the Lord. So I have been a part of revitalization of the downtown, revitalization in the neighborhood. Um, I'm working on the marina to bring new opportunities for recreation, because I think if we can get people into the, the beautiful outdoors and down by the Ohio River, it may turn their hearts toward God. You know, we he his power and his divinity are are speaking to every human heart through nature. And so if we can get some of these kids off their tablets and, and uh, video games and out into nature, who knows what God may do in their hearts and minds. Um, it also, I'm looking for opportunities to bring grandparents and children together. How can I strengthen multiple family units? Um, some of that is done through social work and counseling, but there's a role that government can play um, and so that's why that's why I've said yes uh, to the Lord. I want to serve in this capacity. Um, and I've had some really uh, fun opportunities. Um, our new mayor decided that he didn't want a silent prayer before we started. He wanted pastors to pray. And it's been beautiful to have all these pastors come and before council begins, they pray. Well, five times so far this year, 
someone didn't show up that said they'd come. And so the mayor turns to me and says, okay, you pray, would you do it? (laughs) And it's been such a privilege as my job (laughs) to pray out loud over the city and over the people and bring them before him and, and beg God for wisdom as we move into these very practical matters that need to be decided. So families and communities are so fragmented and there is such a craving for that communal relationship, whether it's in a family or in a community. And especially with, as you mentioned, tablets and things like that. I mean, with um, so much more media, people turning in towards media independently, it really is just taking away the need for any kind of social, personal contact. And um, so all the things that you mentioned are are so necessary in every community and starting to be more and more lacking where, you know, you don't even know your next door neighbor for many, many years of living in a neighborhood. So it's nice to hear someone actually use and understand the word service when it comes to politics and in the way that you described of truly desiring to serve, because I think we've gotten so used to hearing all of the talking points from politicians from the lowest to the highest levels. Um, but we all have this understanding that service is really not what they're about. You know, there's an underlying power and greed and money and all of this other kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's definitely an area where Jesus is needed, you know, to say the least. So I agree. And knowing that, you know, money is a resource that God is making available to people. I think those in government have to take very seriously when they are uh, taxing people, um, you are taking that money and you better be a good steward of it because this is something that um, uh, is a gift, uh, uh, the fruit of people's hard work. Um, and and so I, I welcome the chance to get to do that. You have written and contributed to quite a few books focusing on biblical wisdom for women, marriage, family, and Catholic education. I personally was particularly touched by your 2001 release of Life-Giving Love, Embracing God's Beautiful Design for Marriage. At the time, I was a recent revert from a very uneducated Catholic faith and had fallen deep into the ideologies of the feminist movement. I had built a disdain for marriage and family in my heart, which was subject to my own desire for personal success. Life-giving love cut to the core of what I knew to be true. It resonated loudly of a sacrificial love that I knew deep within required great surrender. And that idea of (laughs) great surrender is certainly not easy. It's one of those things that you read or you hear someone talk about and you know it's true and you almost fear the truth because you're saying, oh my gosh, you know, this, this means a whole entire change of life for me. I'm sure that you felt that when you were thinking of coming into the Catholic church. So what particularly inspired the work of um, life-giving love and, and the things that you've contributed to that have specifically been towards building up marriage and educating people about that sacrificial love. Right. Um, I had begun to do some 
pro-life presentations at youth groups um, on the issue of abortion uh, back in 1979, 1980, 1981. And I was a Protestant. I was attending Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Uh, My husband was also, his degree was to become a pastor. My degree was a two-year Master of Arts. Um, So different degrees, but same school, same, similar uh, classes. And um, as I gave these talks, I would have people come up and ask questions about contraception. And at first I thought, oh, you're not listening. I'm, I'm not talking about contraception. I'm talking about abortion. And then very politely, people informed me, educated me that some forms of contraception actually are abortive. I did not know that. Um, the, the pill 5% of the time does not suppress ovulation. So people on the pill can ovulate. And then that that egg can be um, fertilized. Um, But the secondary action of the pill is to make uh, the um, uterus uninhabitable. And so this newly conceived baby can be aborted um, as it tries to, uh, he or she tries to attach and is unable to attach to the lining of the uterus. The IUD is only and always abortive. It never uh, suppresses ovulation. Um, It only has that damaging aspect to the uterus. And then the mini pill also only uh, was uh, affecting the lining of the uterus. So I realized it wasn't as clear as I had originally thought um, the distinction between contraception and abortion. So when I was in an ethics class, I decided to um, choose contraception as a topic. A group of us met in the back of the room and one man sort of uh, self-appointed himself the leader, and he said, well, I don't see any Catholics here. So it's not a question of whether or not contraception's right or wrong. It's just what kinds. Hopefully we're all pro-life, so just barrier methods should be okay. I mean, it's like no one had opened a book or studied anything, and he was telling us the conclusion. I said, well, why are you saying none of us are Catholic? It was a Protestant uh, seminary, but I mean, what difference does that make? He said, well, Catholics are against contraception. Now, I was probably 22 at the time. I had Catholic friends. I had never heard anybody say there was a problem with contraception apart from the abortifacient methods. So I said, well, why why do they say that? He said, there are only two reasons. The first is that the Pope isn't married, so he doesn't live with the consequences. And he said, and secondly, Catholics are just out to make all the Catholics they can in the world. And I thought, (laughs) <laughs> so shallow, his analysis. And I said, I, I can't imagine a thinking Catholic would say that. And he said, if you want to know why they teach what they teach, you can look into it. I couldn't care less. I just simply began to do some reading. I read Humani Vitae. Now I have to tell you at this point, it didn't matter that a Pope was a Pope. Okay. I just was curious why the Catholic church took such a stand that didn't seem to fit the current thought, you know, But I didn't care that it was a pope. But when I read it, the description of marital love was so beautiful. And it was simple and compelling. Um, His his thought process and how we wanted to speak truth from our bodies. Um, Instead of saying, I'm totally yours and you're totally mine, except for the part that can be fertile. And then I'm going to kill the egg and maim the, the, the sperm and, and damage the sides of the uterus because I utterly reject the possibility that this could create new life. 
but I'm totally yours. I mean, it it just made it, it really following the logic in Humani Vitae opened my eyes and opened my heart to something I didn't expect. And without going into more detail, I really share a lot about this in Life Giving Love. The the church's view is absolutely beautiful. Um the opportunity we have to speak the truth of love to each other, to totally receive each other, and by the grace of God, should he bless our union with new life, the privilege of bringing that new life into the world, baptizing this child as a child of God, a person who would not exist apart from our love and who would not have that gift of grace apart from bringing that child to the baptismal font, and then the rest of our lives sharing together a life of faith. It is it is just an unspeakable privilege. And I'm so grateful for the mercy of God that broke through long before we even considered becoming Catholic. It's very overwhelming. And it's funny because so many um, Catholics found their way into the church through the idea of contraception, unlocking that truth and understanding that. And you would think that that would be something that would really turn a Protestant away from everything Catholic if they were even looking into the Catholic Church. But there are so many people that have testified to the fact that it was actually the argument, you know, against contraception that brought them deeper into the church and unlocked so many other truths. And that was kind of the gateway that led them into further theology. And I think for a lot of people outside the Catholic Church, that just blows their mind. It just doesn't make sense that something so countercultural could be the thing that would bring someone into this, um, you know, church that they don't really understand in the first place, and that that would be the thing that would draw them in. Um, It's that contraception mentality that really pressures parents today to believe they have to be financially comfortable and able to provide every luxury for their children before being able to open their hearts to more. Um, you know, they have to be able to pay for their whole college and every get them a new car at 16 and all of these other kind of things that we're told, you know, that we are expected to provide for every single child. Um, and many good Christians even struggled to decide how to best navigate openness to life based on finances, health, mental well-being. So what advice can you give to parents in the thick of this and, you know, really trying to shut out some of those pressures of the world, but then at the same time trying to really listen to what the Lord's putting on their heart about openness to life or, you know, in light of where they are in their marriage and in their family and their vocation at the time? I would say that I think a sibling is one of the greatest gifts you can possibly give a child. Um, When people are weighing all of the material goods that they want to provide, and of course our hearts are so generous toward our children, and we do want to give them wonderful things, beautiful things. They're, you know, help them with college, et cetera. But we really need to go back to, to the most basic questions of what, is the greatest need that my children have. First and foremost is the love and commitment of spouses. My children need to know I love their father and their father loves me. And so I need to foster that relationship. And in part, 
being open to the physical act of making love is a ministry we have with each other, physically celebrating the union that God has given us. And that also involves openness to life, the power of the gift of our fertility and and welcoming new life. The, The second thing is the gift of siblings. The third is how do we help them prepare for heaven? Because as my husband says, we're here to get out of here. And what are the virtues that I need to develop in my child? Will my child be more likely to develop those virtues based on sharing a room or having a room all by themselves? Um, I mean, I don't know why, but for some parents, the ultimate gift is your own room, your own stereo system, your own TV and video system, all in isolation, But if you really look at families where kids had to share rooms and they had to work on the virtues of living together and and being kind to each other and forgiving and all of that, I I think you'd be hard pressed to say the, the the best thing is to give them everything all by themselves. Um, I also don't think it prepares them very well for marriage (laughs) if you indulge and Mm -hmm. overindulge. And so what will what will help me be better prepared? for eternity and for my children. And I think that that is in part, not exclusively, but in part that openness to life and welcoming one more soul into our family. That's beautiful. And I know the Bible often speaks about how older women and older men can train the younger generations. And, you know, that there's a reverence that you should listen to your parents and your grandparents and other people, elders and things like that. And I think that's something that always strikes me when I read those verses, because I feel like um, in, you know, the millennial generation and the generations even previous to that, we've really lost that, you know, where there's a severing of um, that connection with the past generations and, and inheriting that wisdom from them. And I think that is, Part of the reason that we've gotten so far away from um, the love of obedience and the love of wisdom and um, the love of sacrifice, because I think that is one thing. And you speak about it so eloquently many times in Life Giving Love about how, you know, motherhood especially is a sacrificial love and marriage is a sacrificial love. And as you're speaking about with siblings, you learn about that sacrificial love. And I think that. If I can think of one thing that is really missing right now in our culture, it's the idea that you want to embrace sacrificial love because that, you know, when you look at Jesus up on the crucifix, that doesn't seem like the kind of love that you really want to embrace. And I think that we have, um, you know, we turn so much away from, from sacrifice and and from any kind of suffering, especially for another person, if it's not for our own gain or or something like that. And that's something that John Paul II worked very hard to show us the beauty of sacrificial love and the beauty of laying down one's life for one another. And you also state in um, Life-Giving Love that motherhood is Mary's highest calling. She did many things. She did them all well, <laughs> but motherhood, you know, a lot of us don't think of it as the highest and greatest thing that we will ever do. But ultimately, um, you know, more than any 
magnificent cathedral, it is creating a dwelling for an immortal soul. And of course, you know, not every woman is able to do that physically, but any sort of motherhood, whether it's religious motherhood, adoptive motherhood, or physical motherhood, is God entrusting a child or children to us that we otherwise wouldn't have a relationship that we wouldn't have. And as you said, we're here to get out of here. And a lot of times we think of, um, you know, we put a lot of focus on getting our children to heaven, which is great. But recently I had heard um, from a Catholic couple that our children are also really here um, to get us to heaven in a way that they reflect our faults. And in doing so, they, you know, call us to a greater virtue. And I know so many times when I, the worst of my children, when they're at their worst, it's usually when they're reflecting something that I've said or done or a behavior, um, a frustration, you know, a way that I've reacted to something. And they're kind of mimicking that in their own role, either towards me or towards a sibling. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible. You know, like that's just, oh, where did they learn that? And I realized it's exactly me, you know? And so I think that, um, you know, there are certain times where we pause and say, oh my gosh, Lord, why did you even entrust me with these children? (laughs) I'm botching this whole thing. But you see that that is creating greater virtue in you. So I'd ask you, what, how do you feel about that? The wisdom you've studied in great length and written about the wisdom, biblical wisdom for women and marriages and families. What is that that we can gain from that biblical wisdom of learning from generations past all the way to our biblical ancestors? Right. Well, I think in our quiet time, in the, especially if it's possible to do it at the beginning of the day, but whenever it's possible and with young mothers and nursing mothers, you know, it, it's not always possible to do it first thing in the morning, but to read sacred scripture. Um, the catechism says that in the scriptures, God speaks to his children with great love. And so we approach the scriptures and say, please reveal the wisdom that is here that I need to apply today that I need to um, either apply in, in training my children or in my own life um, to grow in virtue and to grow in, in patience or holiness. Um, then we pursue the wisdom of uh, particular saints, finding out um, books that have been written either by saints or about saints that can stir our hearts in new ways and, and to point the, point the way on for us. Um, inquire we every week we pray the prayer of humility and it is so amazing to pray that in the context of choir because it's really asking god to have us not be the focus which is so important when you're singing for mass that you're not thinking you're the show you know that you're just there um so so Actually, praying prayers that have been written um, by saints can also be a way of opening our hearts. And then definitely pursuing older women, especially if you're a woman, older men if you're a man, and talking to them about marriage and family life and getting from them practical wisdom, uh, because there is practical wisdom that can be gleaned by holy people who are are truly trying to honor him in their marriages and in their families. And we can pick up all kinds of tips and ideas. Both of my parents are still living 
They pray for me every day. I call them with things that are going on in council. Um, and they, they give me their wisdom. And, uh, and so I think, you know, we can all turn to the saints, but we can also living small s saints. We can, you know, get in touch with and ask, or even just when we're overwhelmed by either our sinfulness and habits that are not good or habits we see in our children, asking older, uh, sisters and brothers in Christ to pray with us and for us. Well, I want to thank you so much for all that you've done in your writing, all that you've allowed us to glean from your wisdom. And um, hopefully you'll continue writing and sharing your pearls of wisdom with us younger men and women out there struggling through the trenches right now of trying to make it to that perch of wisdom. and. Thank you for what you're doing in the political arena, for giving that good example and that Catholic example. Thank you, especially for being with us tonight. Thanks, Kim. And God bless you as you're in the trenches. I know, I know you're right in the thick of things, but these are really treasured times. And uh, and I will just uh, promise you, I will keep you in my prayers. Thank you. Our guest tonight has been Kimberly Hahn.